2 Corinthians chapter 12, reading from verse 14 through to the end of the book. Um, You can find this on page 1167 of the Pew Bibles. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual sins and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. 
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thanks, Fiona. Um, Please keep that passage open as we look closely at that, and let's pray. To Timothy 3, Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed. Lord, we thank you these words before us now, that they're your words, that they're life-giving words, and that they're good for us. So by the work of your Spirit, help us to receive them humbly and with faith. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say that none of us likes being told that we're going wrong, do we? None of us likes that. Um, As children, we don't like it when our parents point out our our mistakes or our bad habits. Uh, If we're drivers, we don't like being told that we're taking a wrong turning or might be driving a little too fast. It might be true, but uh, we don't often receive it well. We all resist being corrected. And yet, it is very important that we can be corrected, isn't it? Listen to Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Okay, that's nice and blunt from uh, Proverbs. Whoever hates correction is stupid. So let's not be stupid. Let's be able to receive correction. It's very important. But it's not easy. Hard to receive, but also hard to give. Um, You might be concerned about a friend getting into damaging patterns of behavior, but it's very hard to speak up, isn't it? Uh, No parent relishes disciplining their children. Um, You might need to give some negative feedback to someone at work. You find yourself kind of wanting to avoid it, but we know it's important. Well, that is the theme that is kind of hanging over the end of 2 Corinthians. Paul is preparing to visit this church, as he says twice in our passage, for the third time. So the first time was when he founded the church. The second time he describes as a painful visit because he had to confront a number of issues in the church. Now he's preparing for his third visit when he may have to do the same. Because as we've seen, there are some problems. They're being influenced by outwardly impressive false teachers who've turned them against Paul. He's also concerned about ongoing immorality in the church. So he's preparing them here for this visit, this third visit, and possible confrontation. And as he does that, he teaches us quite a lot about giving and receiving correction rightly. Okay, so we're going to broadly cover this in two sections. So the end of chapter 12 covers the the motivation for correction, and then chapter 13 goes a bit more into the method of kind of who does what. So first, motivation. And the first point is this. Godly correction is motivated by love. Godly correction motivated by love. This is the end of chapter 12. So here, Paul really wants to show the Corinthians that whatever he says when he comes to them will come out of his love for them. And he shows that love in various ways. So in verse 14, he says he doesn't want stuff from them. He doesn't want their possessions. He says, no, I want you. Do you remember those false teachers, how the way they charged high prices for their services? They would come and take, take from the Corinthians. Paul says, no, he doesn't want to be a burden to them. And he never has been. In verse 16, he says, I have not been a burden to you. They might accuse him of tricking them. That's what he means by that bit. 
But uh, no, he says, no, think back over my ministry. Did I exploit you, he says? Or did anyone else I sent, Titus or anyone else? Did they exploit you? Not a bit of it. No, he's not demanding anything from them. In fact, he says, if you want a picture of my ministry to you, then think of me as a parent. Verse 14. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. He's like a parent. Because that's what parents do, isn't it? If you're a parent, you'll know that. They give themselves to what is best for their children. They'll try to do anything to help their children. Nothing is too much trouble. If you're a child and you've got a problem, your parents will want to help you because they love you. And Paul says that has been his attitude to the Corinthians. And that should be the attitude of any faithful uh, church leader. Uh, Sometimes people ask me uh, about my job, people who are not Christians. And uh, one thing I say is that it's a little bit like being responsible for a big family. Uh, Because it's it's not just a job, You're, you're caring for a church family, and therefore you you share in many of the the joys and the sorrows that come with being part of a family when you see um, children sometimes going well, sometimes struggling. That's what the job is like, being a parent. Uh, Richard Baxter was a Puritan pastor who wrote about what it meant to be a minister. He said this, the whole of our ministry must be carried on in tender love to our people. We must let them see that nothing pleases us but what profits them, and that what does them good does us good, and that nothing troubles us more than their hurt. We must feel toward our people as a father towards his children. Yea, the tenderest love of a mother must not surpass ours. It's amazing, isn't it? Very challenging. A pastor must be like a spiritual parent, always wanting what is best for their children. And that is why Paul is so concerned about the things that are wrong, the sin that he can see or he hears about. He's afraid that when he comes to them, he's going to find broken relationships. See verse 20, I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder. He doesn't want to see those things in his children, so so to speak. He's afraid, verse 21, that they haven't repented and turned away from impurity, sexual sin, debauchery, the things he picked up in his first letter. If he sees those things, he has to say something, doesn't he? Of course he does. Just like any parent, if they're distressed to see their child getting into bad habits or getting into damaging patterns of behavior, they they want to speak up, difficult though it is, because they love them. And so, too, the faithful church leader will want to address ongoing sin in God's people where they see it. Why? Out of love for them. We have to see that, don't we? The the Corinthians were kind of convinced that Paul was against them. And uh, and we can be a bit like that, can't we? When people try to correct us, we, uh, we act like they're attacking us. And so we get prickly or sulky. We hit back. We need to recognize, don't we, when people are speaking out of love, out of loving concern, because they want the best for us. That was Paul's intention. See verse 19. Everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. 
So let's think about how this uh, applies to us. I guess, first of all, please pray for those of us who lead in, in different ways in the church, that we will be motivated by love. And of course, that will only really come from one place. It's only as we understand, as we were thinking earlier, it's only as we understand God's love for us that we will love others like this. It's only as we see that God loved us enough to pursue us in spite of our sin. And God loves us enough to not just leave us as we are, but to address our sin. If we know a love that, that deals with our sin for our good, then with his help, we can love others like that. Please pray for us. But also, all of us, let's pray for ourselves that when someone challenges us about something in our lives, that we'd recognize loving concern when, we, when, we, when it's happening. Loving concern that wants the best for us. Because godly correction is motivated by love. Well, now we move on to chapter 13, where Paul moves from motivation more on to method. How does, how does correction actually happen in church life? Well, where the Corinthians are concerned, Paul actually talks about sort of three parties being involved. There's him, there's the Corinthians themselves, and then there's the Lord. And we'll look at them in turn. So first, I guess the obvious one, Paul. Paul comes as the apostle. He's the role of the church leader. How should church leaders go about this difficult business of uh, correction? Well, first, it's vital, we know, that it's based on God's word, don't we? Um, it doesn't just come from what the leader thinks. It's, it's based on what God has said. Um, that verse that I uh, quoted at the beginning from 2 Timothy, it carries on. Uh, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that's what this book is for. And that's what this book is for, for a church minister to, to teach and train, yes, but also to rebuke and correct. So it must come from God's word. But then also, how does he go about it? Well, it struck me this week that, that what Paul describes here um, chimes exactly with what I once heard in a talk as someone was speaking about, a pastor speaking about church discipline. He'd had to deal with some very difficult issues in his church. And out of that experience, he said he, he had two points to, to make um, about how it should be done. He said, don't rush it and don't duck it. And, and you can see that those are kind of opposite errors to avoid. On the one hand, rushing, moving too fast. On the other hand, ducking it, avoiding it altogether. And it's, it's interesting, very much in line with what Paul says here. So first, Paul, we see Paul doesn't rush into this. So the problems in Corinth are huge, but think about it. This is now his third visit. Those visits, he says, are like three witnesses slowly establishing a case against them. In verse 2 of chapter 13, he says he gave them a warning last time, and he's now repeating it again, writing while still absent from them. So do you see? He's giving them time to respond. Or, or look at verse 10. He says, this is why I write these things while I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not tearing you down. Do you see? His longing is that he, he warned them in his letter, and they'll heed his warning so that by the time he arrives, 
they'd have turned away from sin. They would see these uh, super apostles for what they are. They'd be reconciled to him. He's not rushing into it. And this is uh, such important wisdom for us, for for church leaders especially, but I guess for all those in authority over others who have to correct children's leaders, parents, I guess, when there's something that needs to be addressed, don't rush it, as Proverbs says. Don't be hasty and miss the way. It's very important. Don't jump to conclusions. Give people time to talk. Give them time to respond. Sometimes really blatant sin does need swift action, but even there, great care is needed. Sin needs addressing, but don't rush it. But on the other hand, don't duck it. And Paul assures them that he won't do that. See verse 2, on my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. He's not going to avoid it. He doesn't say what he'll do. But if there's no change, he is going to bring some form of church discipline. Now, he's not, he doesn't tell us what he's going to do here. Um, if we look back at 1 Corinthians 5, where he talks a bit more about that, there he said to them, expel the immoral brother. In other words, they should no longer be treated as a member of the church. Um, you know, if, they're, if they're not living as Christians, don't treat them as Christians. Um, and certainly they would not be welcome at the Lord's table. Well, we don't know what he'll do, but it's clear that if they don't respond to his patient warnings, he is not going to duck it. And I imagine that, that, that this is our greater temptation. I think it's mine. And uh, if you are naturally conflict-averse, and just about everyone tells me that they're conflict-averse, um, then the temptation is just to leave problems, isn't it? Uh, even if you're aware of them, just... just not to address them at all. And it's understandable, isn't it? Because none of us likes confrontation. But actually, it's very important, isn't it? God calls us to be holy. God calls us to be people who obey him and reflect him to the world. So leaders mustn't duck this responsibility. To avoid it is negligent. Uh, we might kid ourselves that we're, we're kind of thinking about the other person that we are you know, protecting them from being offended. But actually, the person we're really protecting in that situation is ourselves. You know, we're avoiding the pain of confrontation ourselves, and we're not doing them any good. Again, hear the wisdom of Proverbs. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. It's interesting, isn't it? A pastor who never challenges you is not your friend. A pastor who sometimes tells you things that are painful to hear, that need changing, is not your enemy, if they're speaking the truth out of love. And I guess the same is true between one another as as Christians in the church family. We should be able to challenge in love and to be challenged, shouldn't we? Anyway, so that's Paul's role in correction. But it's interesting, he's not the only one who should be thinking about this. Next, he mentions the Corinthians themselves. They have a responsibility for themselves. Look at verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. 
Now, again, I think I guess this is evidence of Paul's patience with the Corinthians. Before he arrives and gives his verdict on them, he invites them to assess themselves. They're to look into the mirror, spiritually speaking, and consider, are they truly Christians? He wants them to think about their relationship with Christ. For if Jesus is their Lord and Saviour, then Christ will be at work in them by his Spirit. That will show itself in how they speak and how they live. But Paul's challenge to them is an important one for us. We should examine ourselves. Um, I imagine that you, you keep an eye on your physical health. I hope you do. Check your weight. Get your heart and your blood pressure checked. What about your spiritual health? Um, if I can ask Paul's question here, are you in the faith? Are you truly a Christian? It's something that is very often misunderstood. A Christian is not just someone who tries to do good, who, who goes to church. It's not even someone who believes in God. That can mean many things. What would you say? Are you in the faith? Can I say to you, if you're not sure on that, then well, do make the most of that, that evening we've got planned on the 18th. It's exactly what it's for, just to get clear on those central questions. What does it mean to be a Christian and to believe? But then also, if you do claim to be a Christian, are you living it out? It's good to, to do a spiritual health check. Check there's no blatant inconsistency in your life that could, that could make someone reasonably say, well, you call yourself a Christian, but you're obviously not living as one. Um, I mentioned the Lord's Supper uh, just now. Uh, we don't always use all of the uh, liturgy um, for the, uh, the Church of England service, but the liturgy does include this instruction you can use. The scriptures teach that those who intend to eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord must examine their lives and repent of their sins. Maybe we should use that a bit more often. The implication is that if we don't do that, then, we, well, we shouldn't partake. We shouldn't eat and drink. But then the encouragement, of course, is to take advantage of that moment of reflection because it goes on. Uh, it encourages us to truly and earnestly repent of our sins, to be reconciled and at peace with our neighbours, uh, and to, to lead a new life following the commandments of God, and to be encouraged then by that visible sign of God's grace to you. So correction is uh, it's Paul's work, the church leader's work, but it's also the Christian's own work. We should examine ourselves. Then finally, it is Christ's work. It's Christ's work. What I mean is that as Paul or any church leader brings uh, correction and discipline to the church, Jesus himself is at work. Let's see the end of verse 2 again. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. See, as Paul deals with the Christians in Corinth, Christ is dealing with them. Now, there's sort of an irony here that the Corinthians weren't very impressed with Paul. They wanted him to prove that he really was Christ's spokesperson. He says, well, here's the proof. As I call you to account, Jesus is at work. Um, his apparently weak ministry comes with the power of Christ, who rose from the dead. Verse 4, for to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives. 
by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. I think these verses remind us of something we often forget, that that the Lord Jesus is living and active in his church today. It's not just that Jesus died and rose in the past. It's not just that he will return in the future. He is with us now. He is working powerfully by his word, through his spirit. He is building his church. He is bringing people to new life. He is active. He is strengthening faith. And he's also purifying his church, bringing discipline, calling people to repentance and faith through the ministry of his word. It's quite a thought, isn't it? It's good to remember that. It means we... We shouldn't underestimate what is happening when we gather, when God's word is read and preached. The Lord is at work. And because it's his work, we should pray. Just as Paul prays in verse 7, he says he prays to God that the Corinthians would respond as they should. So this is godly correction. This is what it should like. It should emerge from self-examination, It's part of the the work of the the minister, not rushed, not avoided, but ultimately it is the work of Jesus himself. It flows out of a love for God's people that they might turn from sin and turn to their saviour, be built up in him once again. And that kind of love that must drive this, it comes through in the the closing verses of the the letter. It's been a letter full of challenge, hasn't it, as we've gone over it, these uh, past two terms, and yet you can hear Paul's affection as he calls them at the end to rejoice, to be uh, restored in their relationships, to encourage one another, to show affection for one another, and you hear it as he sends warm greetings and finishes with the blessing that we know as the grace. We're going to finish with that later on in our service. So let's uh, be a church where we can give and receive godly correction that's motivated by God's love and marked by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that as we gather that you are with us and we trust you that you are working for our good and for your glory as we gather. And so we we pray that we would be a church that hears your voice and that is ready to be uh, taught and trained, but also rebuked and corrected. Lord, because we know that you're doing a good work in us and making us more like yourself. So give us soft hearts that are willing to receive those words, to be humble before you, ready to respond. And we ask that, that your name would be glorified uh, amongst us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.